Good morning, everyone. I don't know why I said good morning. It's 1.54 p.m. Central Time on Sunday, July 25th. Um, for those of you keeping track at home, it is one week and six days until my wedding. Very, very exciting. Um, that's all I can think about. That is not why this podcast is going up late, nor why is it why I am posting an extra little bonus thing here at the beginning. We did an interview with an author. Um, I, I'm Now I'm hesitating to say his last name because I got it wrong in the episode. You'll hear me get it wrong to his face, so I'm not going to say it now. His name is Dr. Michael, and he wrote a great book called The Wisdom of the Word, published by Word on Fire. And we got to interview him about his book. And we talked about a lot of really, really good things. And um, my audio and Patrick's audio recorded for the whole about hour and 15 minutes that we talked. His audio uh, cut out right at like the 50 minute mark. And so we're missing about 25 minutes of his content. And you can, if you listen to the whole thing, you just hear a bunch of silence. And then me and Patrick go, wow, that's really insightful. Thank you. Like I actually changes the way that I think about things. Thank you. But like you don't actually hear the content because just for whatever reason, it just cuts off. And I don't know if that's because of Zencaster, the thing that we were using. I don't know if that's because something about his onboard microphone broke. We only have about three fourths of the interview. What I think we have is really good. It's just going to end very abruptly. And we're, we're, it's going to come back to my voice and you're going to be like, man, I wish we could hear the rest of the episode. And I wish you could too. Cause it was really, really good. Um, but you know, I'm past the point in my life where I'm going to worry about these things. I'm going to trust that you guys are going to listen if you want to and not listen if you don't want to. Um, you always have the Bible cast. You know, we just recorded another episode of that. So uh, if you're really hurting for some crunch content, head on over to patreon.com slash the crunch. Check out the Bible cast. If you like this episode, buy Dr. Michael's book, The Wisdom of the Word, Word on Fire Publishing. Buy it straight from Word on Fire. Don't buy it from Amazon. I'm of the opinion you shouldn't buy anything from Amazon unless you absolutely had to. Just and generally you don't have to buy anything. So think about that. Um, enjoy the episode. Dr. Michael is a great, great, wonderful soul, beautiful, intelligent. I think this interview is very good. Enjoy it. I'll talk to you soon. Welcome to The Crunch, the only podcast that Word on Fire needs help from. It's your boy, Ethan. And I'm Patrick. Word on Fire, I know you're listening. Um, we're doing a really good job. We're doing our best. Yeah, they're Thank listening you. to see if we're doing a good job, and you need to not, you need to not insult them. I know. Well, they're I'm throwing us they a bone are. here. <laughs> they are, they're they like, really let's are see throwing if these, us a bone. They're like, let's see if these little kids can fly. Let's, can, see, let's see if these nerds got, got what it takes. Yeah, let's see if they can handle it. We've got a, we've got a guest on the show today, uh, Dr. Michael Dauphine. Did I say that all correctly? No, you did not. <laughs> you, do, you go, you do, you do it. It's doctor. Uh, it's doctor Michael Dauphine. Dauphine, right? not Dauphine? No, not okay. Dauphine. Man, I was really excited to say it correctly and then to it's, introduce him and give his credentials, but now it's I actually a, It's actually a super simple trick. When someone tells you how to pronounce your name, you listen. I know. Um, <laughs> He's the a professor and chair of theology at Ave Maria University. Uh, been there for a long time. Ave Maria, as we all know, where I lived for a couple months as a focused missionary also happens oh, to right. be where he teaches, uh, recently published the wisdom of the word, biblical answers to 10 pressing questions about Catholicism. The reason we're joking about word on fire is because his word on fire published his book, published it. Yeah. And, and then, then now he's on our show. So welcome Dr. Michael, happy to have you on the show. Glad to be here. This is wonderful. So you, you've been teaching at Ave Maria for how long? Uh, 20 years. Yeah, oh I actually God. just began my 21st year on uh, July 1st. Wow. 21. Have you finally, have you finally transcended to the, um, I don't know what the, the degrees are in academia, a uh, super mega ultra professor yet? Uh, that's right. Yes. Yeah, that's what it you is. Go from assistant to associate and then you become a professor. So. I went to, I went to a commencement and they just kept announcing people who went up a level and I'm like, Oh, it's sitting nice. They went up to associate. Okay. And they just kept adding. And I'm like, half of these are fake. I guarantee you half of these are fake. I don't know how it works. Yes. Yeah, it's kind of the, funny. It's one of the few fields where only at the end do you actually become a professor. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. And your hat just gets bigger and bigger as you go. You see those poofy hats that they wear? You have one of those? 
I do have a poofy hat. One time, I, when I was a, when I was a freshman, I I, I tweeted um, at the at the Bishop of Steubenville because he was doing the uh, I don't know if you guys down at Ave Maria have to take an oath of fidelity. We do, we do. Ah, good. This is gonna be a good podcast. Uh, so they, <laughs> the the Bishop of Steubenville administered the oath of fidelity and took a picture with all of the uh, all of the new professors that took the oath. And of course, they were all in their academic garb. And I tweeted, "That's the most amount. That's a that's the most funny hats in one picture I've ever seen." And the bishop blocked me. <laughs> and I was like, "Bishop on Fortin, your hat is fine. That's a very normal looking hat. The yeah. others are pretty ridiculous." I got nothing against my Zucchettos. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, have you lived in Florida your whole life? Did you move there just to teach? Do you live in yes, Ave Maria? I, I moved to teach at Ave Maria. Okay. Uh, before I lived in Maryland and gotcha. North Carolina. Minnesota, Michigan, so moved around somewhat as an academic going off to mm-hmm. college, graduate school, sure. et cetera. So tell me, I don't know. I mean, the last time I was in Ave Maria was before the pandemic. That was, we were supposed to have summer training there in 2020, but obviously that got canceled, which was very sad because I loved being in Ave for, for focus training. Um, not much in the way of shopping, restaurants, <laughs> Uh, various kinds of places to go. I know they have the beans still, and probably the uh, the smoothie place, and the Italian restaurant, and the and the pub. Are they are they going to put in a McDonald's anytime soon? Like, are they really? Do you know if there's any plans to liven up maybe the nightlife of Ave Maria? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You probably have to ask the students about that. They seem to okay. figure out where the places are to hang. Like, out. what do you what do you do for fun after you've been to the four places to go in Ave Maria? Well, I love uh, I love exercising, okay. uh, running, uh, going to the beach is always a beautiful place to visit. How far away is the beach from Ave? Yeah, it's about 45, 50 minutes. Uh, so, but beautiful yeah. sunsets. That's so true. That's great. That's what the West Coast of Florida has going for it is sunsets. I was due always on the COVID, East Coast. Due to COVID, one of my sons visited a fair amount. And uh, so he got me back playing golf. And Good. So I was about to ask great. about the golf. They got a nice golf course deep. out there. Yeah. Yeah. And it's very cheap during the summer. So it fits my budget. So I'm nice. Nice. That's amazing. Well, I'm curious, what was your original, I want to trace kind of your life leading up to this book and then we'll get into the book as we kind of maybe more understand you. Where did you start? You know, because nobody just becomes a professor and a, and a chair of a, of a whole section of a college, you know, like you start. I started as a, uh, right, I was baptized Catholic, uh, raised in a Catholic family. Um, but as a young age, after con- my first communion, first confession, I really just didn't want to practice the faith very much mm-hmm. anymore, and my family didn't insist that I did. And soon, just became a rather, you know, just became atheist. I just felt mm-hmm. that the faith was not intelligent, was not scientific. Uh, people don't. Sometimes people don't think that 10-year-olds think all these things, but I think they really misunderstand the psychological and intellectual life of a 10-year-old. There's no dinosaurs uh, I, in the Bible, so it must be wrong. That's exactly <laughs> right. You just all these different things. And so I kind of rejected my faith uh, a little bit later, um, you know, dealt with some personal tragedy. A sister died in a plane crash suddenly, mm-hmm. and I had already rejected God with my head, and then I kind of rejected God with my heart. Wow. And it was only later, uh, partly by studying in college a lot of atheistic philosophy, Nietzsche, Marx, and others, that I began to feel like there was a lot attractive in that philosophy. It just didn't seem to be true. Hmm. It seems <laughs> to explain a lot of what I wanted to be the case, but it didn't seem to explain genuinely who I actually was and who I knew myself to be through my hmm. relationships with other people. Hmm. Right. It accounts kind of for everything but human love. And right. So other than that, it was a good theory. So anyway, eventually I came back to the faith, uh, ended up becoming uh, kind of an evangelical Protestant for a couple of years, but kept studying and studying a lot of scripture and the early church fathers came back to belief that Christ had not only right uh, offered his life on the cross for my salvation and offered me faith in him but also had established a church, established the sacraments, right? And also, of course, given scripture. So I ended up coming uh, back to the Catholic faith, was confirmed. Mm -hmm. Uh, During that time, I'd been studying engineering, Mm -hmm. uh, mechanical engineering at Duke University, and ended up finishing and uh, going into uh, divinity school, studying theology. So it's a little little surprising for my parents and uh, in-laws, but 
you know, they, 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 they put up with me. And eventually I went on, got a master's degree, did a PhD at Notre Dame. I got hired as a professor. And one of the funny stories is when I went to Ave Maria College in Michigan, it was a very small school. I think I was the 12th faculty member hired. Uh, and now I there's one other faculty member that has been around as long as I have. Uh, but <laughs> wow. the other interesting thing is that I ended up actually being dean. So not only did I teach theology, but I also ended up helping to start programs in math, biology, chemistry, uh, all these other different elements. So the funny thing was that I ended up kind of using almost my <laughs> math and science background from engineering along with my theology degree uh, in terms of helping to you know, be part of a developing university. Wow. That's handy. Yeah, it works out. Yeah, things uh, tend to work out. The, I'm, I'm curious, you said that you were reading a lot of Nietzsche and these atheistic philosophers in college. Were you doing philosophy, mechanical engineering, double major? Or were you, was this just in your free time? Like, what was one of the, the unique things about the program of engineering where I studied is that it did give students almost one course a semester to kind of study humanities or other elements. Hmm. So I actually did take a fair amount of classes in yeah. philosophy. Uh, and other areas, and also economics. I was a somewhat of an economics, almost double major. I didn't, so, I didn't catch that. That's a good catch, even. I'm used to. I I, I go to a university. I went to a university that uh, everyone has to take philosophy. Um, I guess you shouldn't go to a university that cares about fully forming the person. That's fine. Uh, uh, yeah. I didn't actually. No. <laughs> I went to what you call a public school, <laughs> where they create you to become a consumer in the ever-growing right. GDP. That's it. That's all that they want you to do. Um, anyway, so that's that's really interesting to me because I think, I mean, obviously it's it was the grace of the sacraments, you know, that you were baptized and all these things that helped you stay on the path to eventually finding Christ again. But I'm curious, was there anything else about just the way that you were studying or maybe the people that you were surrounded by that helped you on that path? Because I feel like the average person, they get to college, they don't believe, they have all these terrible experiences, then they start to read the things that you were reading and then they're just gone, you know, like they're not coming back, but you did, which I'm, I know we can attribute to grace, but were there other factors as well? There are two things that are kind of interesting. One is that there were no really active people. Like, I mean, there were no actively Christian friends that somehow kind of led me along the way. But the other thing is I did have, uh, I had begun uh, dating my now wife. Nice. And I do think that experience of human love, uh, and even her own uh, latent Catholicism at that time mm -hmm. still prompted me to have to ask those questions. One, was it true? Why wasn't it true? And secondly, was reality true? What was this reality of human love, even if not fully lived out or, or well-ordered necessarily at the time, it was still, a, it's a real thing that just if we're going to be honest about human experience, if we're going to be genuinely scientific, we're going to have to take seriously the experience of human love. Yeah. And all right, why is it that we want to make sacrifices for others um, if, right, we're simply about a will to power, mm -hmm. right? Or yeah. if everything's determined by economic uh, modes of production. Mm -hmm. and sure. All of yeah. this family life is merely, uh, right, secondary. Well, yeah. in my mind, it just seemed not to be the case. And I remember picking up a book uh, that was written by a Christian author. And this is one of those things where I do think it is just one time, God, sometimes my, I finally was open to hearing. I just mm -hmm. remember picking up, and it was the first time I'd read a book about God uh, and, you know, a Christian book where I didn't have an immediate hostile reaction. I didn't, wasn't kind of like have a visceral feeling of anger or frustration or this is stupid or whatever. And I just could hear and I listened uh, and it, uh, right, it changed my life. It gave me meaning and uh, purpose. Uh, and as I said, I really think it also just offers, it, it, it correlates to our own experience of the world, uh, not in a way that we could have predicted. Right. We could predict that God might be meaningful, but we could never predict that he would die for us on a cross. Right. So but it yeah. ends up the story somehow fills this hole that was in my uh, own heart. And uh, mm -hmm. and for that, you know, I'm, you know, obviously incredibly grateful. Yeah. So the, the so the road back to the church uh, left you with a little bit of a detour. 
in evangelical Protestantism and on your way to become a, presumably a pastor? Is that you went to seminary? Like Protestant Not yet. Or? No, I was no, actually okay. in a couple of years. I was still in college. But, you know, if I, I might have gone that route. If gotcha. I gotcha. So, yeah, so you were, you were in that theology area. And so what I, what I would like to know is because what I was expecting, because um, I've, I've listened to, you know, Bergman and Han talk about their conversion stories, and then they write books about the Bible. Since you wrote, since you write books about the Bible, I was expecting. I read this book about the Bible, and I was like, "This is the the Bible brought me back to the church." But I, I I heard philosophy. I understand those two things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. But where did your love of scripture kind of come in? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, well, I definitely think Thanks. that was part of my uh, really one of the things I do think I learned from my evangelical Protestant friends mm-hmm. who helped me to learn to say, "Hey, wait a second! I now believe in God. I now believe in Jesus Christ. Help me to be a better Christian." Uh, and uh, they did mentor me and helped me uh, learn to study the Bible and all of that. And that was very helpful. And, you know, and of course, in many ways, what you end up realizing or what I ended up realizing is, wait, wait a second. The church kind of also did that. Like, actually, the church read the Bible at mass. I just never paid attention mm-hmm. uh, or these other different themes. So I do think that was really uh, an important part of it. Uh, and from very early on, there was that sense of, wait a second, what does scripture really teach? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, I need to know how to interpret scripture faithfully. Uh, should we have money? Should we not? Should we get married? Should we not? These are very real questions to a young person discerning a profession and a uh, family life. Mm-hmm. And the Bible kind of even, you know, Jesus and Paul say both things. It can be confusing. It's great to get married. Other times they say it's better not to. Sometimes they say it's okay to have possessions. Other times they say you need to give them all up. So these questions for me were not, they weren't theoretical. They were very practical. I needed to know how to live my life. And I just felt that ultimately I couldn't be the one making the decision about how to read scripture. So it was then when I began to see that the, you know, Augustine and Athanasius and all these other um you know, great fathers in the church that they both took scripture seriously and seemed to take the church seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and yeah. that was kind of what helped me to discover that. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode of The Crunch. Sorry to interrupt what I'm sure is a stimulating intellectual conversation, but I wanted to pause the episode real quick to let you hear from some of our sponsors. We will be back right after this. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's really cool that you you encountered some confusion about scripture and decided to humbly submit yourself to an authority rather than decided that God predestines people to hell. That's like a really cool thing that you did. (laughs) I'm actually a huge fan of submission to tradition and I'm not a huge fan of Calvinism. Of Calvin. (laughs) Yeah, well, I think what was Chesterton said that tradition is the democracy of the dead, right? Mm -hmm. We give the strangest people votes. And there is something beautiful about not only, you know, I said, I was like some of my friends who, that I knew were Christians, I went and talked to and I asked them, how do I become a Christian? Well, why not talk to all the great saints, Mm St. Francis, St. Dominic, Mm -hmm. St. Thomas Aquinas, St. Augustine, right? St. Irenaeus. I mean, all these great saints, as well as the saints in the Bible. Uh, So, right. What a blessing to have that kind of accumulation of tradition as a way of living. Um, I know that many of my students, when I teach, uh, you know, often have an initial reaction kind of against tradition as though it's restrictive. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But one, there's a quote that I love um, by a composer in the early 20th century, uh, but he says that tradition is not the worship of ashes, but it's the preservation of a fire. And the moment I share that image with students, they immediately can I say, that's what I want. Right. What I want is how do I pass on this fire of meaning, this fire of human culture, the fire of divine love, Mm -hmm. right, Mm -hmm. that has been received uh, and needs to be passed on? Yeah, I don't want to keep reinventing the wheel every time I need to every time a new church is started. You know, Mm -hmm. there was that 
there was that instance where Francis Chan, I don't know if you saw that video of Francis Chan realizing that uh, he was like, I, I, I was doing research and I found that like the assembly, the early assemblies of the early Christians weren't centered around a talk and, and, and music. It was centered around the, around communion. And I was like, yeah, yeah. And if, if you'd been a part of the, I mean, I'm not saying, yeah, I knew that the whole time because I'm super smart. Obviously it's because I've been taught that from when I was a kid, but you're, you're exactly right. It's like, he, he was, he had to go back and do like the homework to research and discover how important communion was, whereas we just know it because of tradition. Right, yeah. yeah. And, and I think one thing too, is that, uh, you know, Vatican II spoke about the, you know, Protestant communities as separated brothers and sisters. And I really yeah. think that's also important to remember is that they are brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, they remain. I'm not dunking on Protestants. Oh, no, no, I know. <laughs> but for me, it's, it's helpful yeah. because I, I think, you know, and then, and also in that way that, um, but it's also like your brothers and sisters, you want to bring them home to the table. You know, mm-hmm. you may love your brothers and sisters, but if they can't come home for Thanksgiving, you know, you want them to come and eat with you and, yeah. and drink with you and just have this kind of fraternity that's lived mm-hmm. because a separated brother and sister is still separated. And mm-hmm. so that sense of being able to participate fully in the sacraments, mm-hmm. at least yeah. for me, I know that I felt like I came fully home. I used to joke that uh, you know, as I said, my evangelical uh, Protestant uh, friends and mentors taught me that I needed to receive Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I discovered from the Catholic faith is that I was able to do that in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Right In the yeah. Eucharist, I was able to receive him personal as my personal Savior because I was not, but not my individual Savior, mm-hmm. right? Because I was mm-hmm. home within the family of the church. Uh, and, you know, and again, that really came out of my belief in Scripture. It was what did Jesus really say? And he said, right, do this in memory of me. And so those yeah. words of scripture became very powerful as they're repeated in the life of the church. I'm interested. You mentioned earlier, like your your discovery of tradition played a big role in um, your uh, your turning towards scripture. So like what the what the fathers taught. I noticed I noticed you wrote you wrote a book about uh, Thomas as a biblical theologian now. This is this is undergrad path. All right. This is like this is me years ago. Um, Seeing tradition and scripture as two separate fields of study, you know, like you have systematic theology and biblical theology. Um, Now, that's obviously wrong. (laughs) But I'm curious to see like how um, especially with Thomas, but like the other uh, other theologians as well, like how how integral is this is kind of a leading question. But the relationship between do you see. I don't know what I'm trying to say. I had a really good question earlier. I know I'm, I'm a good podcaster. I'm a good podcaster. Uh, I believe in you. Thank you. (laughs) Do you, um, how do, how do Catholics move away from this separation of scripture and tradition, even though we believe in both of them? Like, how do we move towards unifying the two? Yeah, I think that's a wonderful uh, question. And in some times it's almost like the very answer, the very answer say like, oh, what do Protestants have? They have the Bible. What do Catholics have? We have the Bible and tradition. Well, that makes it sound like they're two different things. Yeah. So, well, then, like, what exactly is the tradition? And then it's kind of like, well, I don't want to just read the Bible. This seems like it, it, it begins to identify. We identify ourselves by what we differ. And that mm-hmm. seems to be a real uh, failing. I loved, I remember early on learning that uh, Leo Thirteenth, who was the pope at the end of the uh, 19th century, right? He gave an indulgence for people who read scripture daily. Any Catholic who reads scripture daily for 15 minutes. So, you know, that argument that Catholics don't want in, or the church doesn't want individual Catholics to read scripture daily is just false. And I know yeah. for me, that was huge. So I really want to see like the tradition as a whole, right, simply means to hand on. So mm-hmm. what's the tradition? Well, it's what Christ handed on. And ultimately, what did Christ hand on? He handed on himself, right? This He handed himself over on the, on the cross and he made that a sacrament by handing himself over at the Last Supper. So he handed himself body, blood, soul, and divinity to us on the cross, right? And that really is the tradition. And then Mm -hmm. from that decisive event in the middle of history, when it is completed through the resurrection, that then simply gets communicated both in the oral tradition of the apostles and the written words of scripture. So scripture really just simply is the tradition. You know, one one thing I think it's kind of interesting, sometimes people will talk, and I find it helpful to remind people that in the catechism, uh, 
it teaches that Christianity is not a religion of the book. Mm-hmm. And that's true. We're a religion of Jesus Christ. We're not just a religion of the book. Right? On the other hand, we are a religion with a book. So, right, we, 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 we love the scriptures because the scriptures are the primary words through which, right, Christ speaks to us, through which God's revelation comes to mm-hmm. us. So we ought to be, and it's not like scripture and tradition as though they're in competition, right? There's almost kind of a prima scriptura, a primacy of scripture within our, right? We don't read letters from the Pope at mass. We don't read, um, right? We don't read uh, wonderful, I mean, you know, wonderful teachings of the church. The Council of Trent is beautiful, but we don't read it at mass, mm-hmm. right? At yeah. mass, we read scripture. And the beautiful thing, and I get to this a little bit in the book, is that, right, when scripture speaks at mass, we say the word of the Lord, right? When the, we read the gospel, we say, right, praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Do we think about that? What we're actually saying is that Jesus Christ here is speaking at the mass, so, right, when, when I say I love the church, it doesn't mean I love necessarily every decision about COVID, right, mm-hmm. that the bishops yeah. make. It means I love the fact that God speaks to me in Jesus Christ through the church. And primarily that is the living words of scripture and then the living words of the sacraments, right? It's in the scripture that I hear, right, your sins are forgiven. But it's also in the confession, I hear your sins are forgiven. Mm -hmm. So in a way, right, those are not opposed to one another. They're really kind of one reality Mm -hmm. that comes to us in in different modes. I was listening to uh, another podcast, No Free Pub, not going to say the name, but it has, (laughs) it was, it was Theology and Insanity with Dave Van Vickle and Dr. Mike Cirilla. They're amazing. Um, But (laughs) we should give them free pub. We should give them free pub because they're doing great stuff. It was on Lumen Gentium, Article 8, where it talks about how the Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church. And although there are elements to be found of the Church of Christ in other churches, uh, its subsistence, its substance is in the Catholic Church. And they, they were just talking about this, and then Dave kind of said this. He was just listening to Dr. Cirilla just kind of talk for a while, and it was all very brilliant stuff. And then Dave was just, they were talking about this whole idea that kind of we're discussing is what what is anyone's thrust to go from Protestantism to Catholicism? Like, why is anyone Catholic? And I think a lot of people, even though there's very evangelically minded, a lot of Catholics, they want to evangelize. They want to say the truth about the Catholic church. They say the wrong thing when someone asks them why they're Catholic, right? They say because of the tradition, right? Or they say because of the, the teachings of the saints or because of the, the witness of, mm-hmm. of this person or that person or whatever. It's like the reason that we're Catholic is because of Jesus Christ. Like that is yeah. why I am Catholic. And <laughs> yeah. that manifests itself in hundreds of ways in my life every single day. And for people to, instead of giving like the, the wellspring, which is kind of what we're talking about, it's like there's one wellspring we're giving yes. like, you know, like the reason I'm Catholic is this stream way down here. You know, and like nobody's inspired by that stream, but you take them to the wellspring. They're like, oh, there's actually this is the source of so much. And I think that's what we miss when we're when Catholics are talking to Protestants about anything. And I think one thing that's interesting is before some of the Protestant divisions, if you look at, say, Catherine of Siena, a 14th century, you know, mystic in the church, her whole book on her dialogues with um, with with Jesus Christ. It's just about Jesus as the bridge. Mm. Jesus is the bridge by which we go from being alienated from God back to God. And then she talks about the the sacraments and even the, you know, the different teachings and other different ways by which Christ puts together this bridge. But that's the fundamental point, right? Is that we were created for communion with God. We lost that communion through sin, right? Through the incarnation, right? And the you know, the cross and the resurrection, Christ gives us a way, God gives us a way back to him. And then by believing in Jesus Christ, by being baptized into Jesus Christ, by receiving him in the Eucharist, by following his teachings, we get to walk across that bridge. But the bridge isn't our effort. It's not our something we built. It's something, right, that God built for us. 
Right? That and seems like a really good four-point presentation of the gospel. Someone should write that down. I know. I think somebody should. I think <laughs> it's quick. Someone started and, uh, But it's right there in the heart of Catholicism. But I do think you're right. Often if people say, why are we Catholic? The answer we think about is, well, why aren't we Protestant? Mm-hmm. And yeah. you're like, that's yeah. Yes. It's the You're so right. Of our faith. Patrick, he's a doctor. I, of course he's right. I was having a friend. <laughs> Listen, there's there's no there's nothing there's nothing so absurd. Some professors somewhere won't believe it. That's true. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but no offense, obviously. But uh, I, I was having a conversation with someone the other day. Is like when we engage in ecumenical dialogue, everyone's right. favorite thing. And when we engage in ecumenical dialogue, we we tend to play on their terms. Like we tend to to cut we tend to show up and like i was having a conversation i mentioned this last week to ethan uh dr michael you weren't there um but i my uh, well, I'm, I'm a youth minister and one of my teens who is protestant is recently decided to come into the church and she talked about you know the, she's like i'm just not sure about all the extra things in catholicism and my temptation was start doing the doing the pat madrid apologetics where you're like well it's not you know it's not technically extra it's like it's this is why this is here and this is why this is here um, and instead I just refused to acknowledge that they were extra, you know, it's like, it's, 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 it's as extra as your nose is extra. Like you can cut it off and still be yourself, but it's not, it, it's so important. And like that, I think, I think refusing to, to, you know, have these discussions on the terms of like, cause they're specious terms, you know, that something is extra or that, you know, oh, well, you guys believe in, it's like how, when, when we, when we try to talk about faith and faith and works, Mm-hmm. We tend to argue for works-based salvation um, because we're trying to like o- overcorrect the damage of, of faith alone salvation. Every Catholic like, becomes well, no, a Pelagian like, when we talk to a Protestant. Right away. We're Every like, well, no, I mean, yeah, <laughs> we're just like, there's like, oh, you want to you be a Pelagian? You want me to be a Pelagian? Absolutely, I yes. will. Right, right if it means that I can prove you wrong, I will absolutely become a Pelagian. It's like, well, that doesn't make <laughs> sense at all. Exactly great on the you know the on that topic uh, the Council of Trent actually is very clear it says that faith is the um, root and foundation of justification mm-hmm. so there is a sense in which faith is first yeah and then works complete faith they allow faith work faith to grow up but it does kind of talk about the primacy of faith mm-hmm. um, there was actually a famous Protestant author. Um, uh, Adolf von Harnack, uh, he gets uh, cited by um, Benedict, uh, Pope Benedict, etc. But he actually was a great historian of dogma, uh, you know, kind of almost the father of liberal Protestantism. But the one thing that's interesting in his history of dogma that he wrote, he said that if the Council of Trent had been written 40 years earlier, there would have been no Protestant Reformation. That's how beautifully he thought mm-hmm. it thought about the doctrine of justification. Um, well, that's right? the saddest so those, thing those I've heard just, today. That's the saddest thing ever. <laughs> Imagine what we could have done. I know, man. What you got to do is you got to take you got to take the text of the Council of Trent and then just like take away the cover and write uh, Lutheran Church Missouri Synod and just hand it to a Protestant friend, and then they'll all they'll just become Catholic. They won't even realize it. They'll just be like, "Oh, this is this is awesome." Yes. But I think this question you're raising about kind of um, losing in a way the forest for the trees, mm. right? We we only kind of pay attention to the tributaries but not to the real source, not the real river. Mm-hmm. And we pay attention. And I think that's a lot of the ways, you know, if you ask people, why aren't they Catholic or why are they leaving the church? Very few people say, you know, I don't, I don't like Jesus Christ. <laughs> you know, I mean, <laughs> it, it's not high on their not a big fan. <laughs> they might say that the church doesn't seem understanding of people who struggle with, you know, sexual vices or something, or, you know, the church is just about money or, right, or the church is all f- filled with arguing or, you know, they might say sometimes like, yeah, I just don't believe that God really knows me or cares about me, right? These are yeah. different things. But but it's kind of like, so one of the things we try to do in the book that we get to is really trying to focus on that sense of like, how do we create that the Bible doesn't become this kind of weird set of trees where all I keep seeing are trees, but I never uh, see the forest. And mm-hmm. and I think that's in a way too. It's like people just think, oh, the Bible's all over the place. The faith is all over the place. And they don't see that unifying message, mm-hmm. that unifying story of hope mm-hmm. uh, that ultimately we see in Jesus Christ. There's a line from the catechism, which I'm sure you're familiar with, uh, where the catechism quotes Drome saying, 
uh, right? Ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think we can flip that and we can say ignorance of Christ is ignorance of scripture because it's only when we see Christ and we really begin to understand him speaking to us, right? And that we're part of the story, right? Yeah. It's one of those things. It's like reading a book where all of a sudden you become one of the characters, right? That's when you can begin to see the story has a unifying theme. That's all so, I ever wanted. I always wanted to be an anamorph. That's <laughs> I don't know if you ever read those books, but they were awesome. I don't think um, he was spending his time reading K.A. Applegate's young adult series, Animorphs. <laughs> no, that's probably true. Ask me anything um, about Tolkien and Lewis, and I'm happy about fairy stories. But yeah. we, could, we, could, we could talk about the, uh, the Christological parallels in, in the Animorphs. I'm just kidding. No, there's none. <laughs> there's none. They're not there. All it is is a kid turns into a gorilla and flips over a police car. That's the whole thing. <laughs> There's no, there's nothing about Jesus. There's also aliens that crawl into your, into your ear and mind control you. Yeah, that's okay? a whole, that's a whole um, thing. That's, that's a whole thing. But you, you, meant, you brought up a good, a good point is that like, uh, you know, this, uh, this missing the forest for the trees, I think something else that's happened in the history of, in, in, in recent history in popular books on scripture for Catholics. Oh, here we go. Is they tend to devolve into the Protestant, the great Protestant tradition of proof texting. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the other direction. So it's like, let's, let's proof text and yes. pick out the individual verses that, you know, as opposed to, as opposed to like, well, you were mentioning this earlier, you could proof text and prove to someone that no Christian should ever get married by using certain sayings of Paul and Jesus. But without looking at the general thrust of scripture, you wouldn't, you wouldn't under, you wouldn't understand like what the actual Christian outlook on marriage is. And so something that I appreciate I, I, that I don't think your book does. It's that. I think it, it very much like takes scripture as a whole and then begins to treat individual topics and issues with that in mind. Instead of here's a list of literally, I have a book like that on my shelf. Here's a list of, of, of cannon fodder for your Protestant friends. You can just mm-hmm. shoot them with John 20, 23 and be like, see, confession is necessary. You know? Yes, well, I think those, sometimes I would say those texts can become um, kind of like helpful summary slogans for very complex themes. And in that sense, yeah. they can become helpful, but they're not going to be really transformative if we just have text versus texts. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we try to do in this book, we do raise like say 10 different questions. Um, mm-hmm. and one, and, but we try to say that the answers are not necessarily easy because the problems aren't easy, mm-hmm. right? The questions about God, the questions about our moral life are not are, you know, the, and people's objections are complex. Mm-hmm. So also the Bible's answer takes time. We really almost have to learn a new language. We have mm-hmm. to learn a new culture. It's like visiting a foreign country. It takes some time. You have to learn some of the grammar, the vocabulary. You have to learn some of the places, right? If you were going to try to speak American English, right, you'd have to get to know who Tom Brady is. You'd have to get to know what the Super Bowl is. You'd also have to get to know 9-11, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. All of these different themes become very important and they take time Mm -hmm. or else you're just going to basically, I'm going to be in Paris, but I'm going to be thinking like an American, as Mm -hmm. you mentioned earlier, I'm just going to be going to McDonald's. Right. Right. I'm not really going to be experiencing it. And so for us to enter the biblical world, which is really just, you know, God's world, it's actually the world of reality. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. But it takes time to enter. You have to kind of see, wait a second, Jesus is the son of David. What on earth could that mean? Who is Mm -hmm. David? Why do Mm -hmm. I care? Why would he have a son? Why would it matter? What was David doing? What was David? If was that king, is he just like a normal king? Or was he somehow trying to fulfill some of the promises that were made to Moses? Some of the promises made to Abraham. Mm hmm. All of these different elements. So that's one of the things we try to show is that it, we, we kind of act, I look at it as kind of like we're like a little bit of a, um, like a travel guide leading mm-hmm. you around a foreign city so that by the end of it, you kind of feel at home mm-hmm. or again, like a tutor helping you to learn a language so that by the end, you know, yeah, maybe you're not ready to speak with adults, but you can speak with children. Right. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, and, and that you can or at least I can, as, as I often, you know, I feel like I can always understand when non-native speakers speak Spanish. Right. Because I, I, they, they, they speak with my vocabulary, which isn't. Yeah. Big, and, and at my pace, which isn't too fast. Right. You know, <laughs> and that's kind of what we want to do, because ultimately, right, if you're going to believe, I think a lot of people leave the church because they don't believe fundamentally what Christianity teaches. 
But in part, they don't believe it because they really haven't spent that much time considering it. Michael, I have a question. I love I love this. We have gotten into Ethan's favorite part of the podcast. We're talking about the Bible. <laughs> Patrick and I just started what we call the Bible cast. So we do the crunch every it's, Sunday. It's the Bible. It's cast. the Bible cast. Wow, I love it. <laughs> yeah. So we inspired by Father Mike and just our own reading of Scripture and kind of getting excited about the Word. Recently, we did this. We're doing this extra podcast just for the people who support us on Patreon. Um, but something that Patrick said that I thought was extremely profound when we recorded our first episode uh, last week was that the Pentateuch is is like the Gospels of the Old Testament, right? Like the way that the Jews read the Pentateuch was this was in the same way that we read the Gospels now. Is they just read it over and over and over and over, and their whole understanding of the Scripture and their way of life was rooted in those first five books. And so it kind of fits that's in still with, the case. My, my yeah. Jewish friend, she like reads the Torah back. She like ends it, goes back to the beginning. Starts yes. over again. And that yes. kind of fits in with what you're talking about of this learning this new language and being rooted in something that is a different way of seeing the world. So I wonder if you could just speak to how Christians can begin to approach, you know, those five books, but also just the old Testament in general, so that when we read the New Testament, when we talk about the church, when we talk to Protestants and we talk to non-believers, we can have this more holistic view of things. And it can be more convicting because it comes from something that's actually more true in a way than if we just read the New Testament, right? Because that's it sounds bad to say it that way, but it's actually like it has to be taken as a whole thing, you know? So, I, yeah, I wonder if you could yeah. speak to that a little bit. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of themes there, right? Even the fact that we in the Eucharist we were talking about earlier, where, well, we wouldn't have the sacrifice of the Eucharist of bread and wine if we didn't have the all of the Old Testament sacrifices of meals, sacrifices of a lamb. This is the lamb of God, right? So, you know, Jesus could not have been Jesus mm -hmm. without the history of Israel. Mm -hmm. uh, that's very important. And I think one I think one of the key things that's important, it, it becomes both important for reading the New Testament as well, but I think especially for the Old Testament is we have to see the Old Testament does two things for us, or, or maybe three as a whole. One is it kind of unveils creation as it was meant to be. Mm. It kind of shows you what would have, what could creation be if creation had not fallen into sin, right? And, and I think that's a real dominant theme. And which means sometimes in the Old Testament, it's showing, not telling. So it's showing you humanity as it's fallen into sin, right? You hear the story of Cain killing Abel, but it doesn't, nothing really, I mean, yes, he, he just kind of gets protected. It's like, it's doesn't tell you, you want us to kind of show what's going to happen, but well, Cain, right? And we begin to see, but his offspring seem to continually be um, murderous, jealous, vengeful, and they so get worse. <laughs> yeah, they get worse. So we see this in the different stories and we begin to think, wait a second. So the story of Cain and Abel, for instance, when we ask that question, well, did it really happen? We're not asking the right question, right? Are you kidding me? Like, just look at your own family. You don't think the story of Cain killing Abel or that look across other families, right? Human beings are constantly at war with one another. And what the Bible is showing us is that that's not the way it's meant to be. There's a reason why in our hearts we rebel against this constant war, fighting, griping, whatever it is, whether or not small scale or big scale. We begin yeah. to say, wait a second, we weren't created for that. So I do, I do think there's a key theme in the Old Testament that it does often show our sins. It shows the sins of David. It shows the sins of King Solomon. It's not pretty, but it's so real. Yeah, and I think I, it's in that reality, but what God is doing is he's also showing us, I have another plan for you. The other plan I have for you is where you would live in, it uses the word justice, but really I don't think that's kind of captures it. What I look at is kind of really harmonious. We live in peace. There's a great word uh, in Hebrew, shalom. Hmm. And the Hebrew word for peace doesn't simply mean not fighting. It's not a ceasefire. It's, it's bountiful abundance. It's, it's mm -hmm. when, it's when the feast is, it's when the harvest is coming in, you have great feasts, uh, everything you want. There's a, a line from Jeremiah 29, 11, where God says, right, I have plans for you, for your welfare, plans for good, not for evil, 
Sometimes you'll see that maybe like on a little, you know, on the back of a laptop. On the the Hobby Lobby or, you know, right, yeah. it's, right it's, next it's, to the it's wine o'clock somewhere sign. Oh, <laughs> yeah, right next. But, but the word there for I have plans for your welfare and for good is actually plans for your peace, for your shalom. So I think that's a great theme is that God wants us to have a kind of abundance. We're created for abundance. Uh, and, and in the Old Testament, you see both kind of the revelation of what will make that peace. God's law which will help make us be rightly ordered and then worship. So we can somehow re-enter into communion with God. Yeah. I, and that, that answers a, a question that, you know, I've, I've had, I've heard friends make, but it's like, like my atheist friends or my Protestant friends, but I, I I've kind of wrestled with myself is like <laughs> when you see stories like, you know, David, well, David and Bathsheba, you see, you see consequences immediately. But there's, I forget which judge it is, but there's the judge that offers his daughter as a sacrifice. Yeah, Jephthah. Yeah, and and he, you don't see immediate consequences, and because we we have we like look back at, at scripture and we see these like the heroes of scripture, we we see them as like uh, uh, figures like leaders that like center of characters that we look up to, you know, like role models, and so it can be hard for someone reading scripture. To see, you know, a judge sin, and then the, con- the 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 author doesn't immediately say, "and that was bad." You know, he kind of the author kind of expects you to think it was bad, or with with Solomon and multiplying many wives and chariots, etc. But I think I think that you're you're right. I think Scripture expects us to notice the decay over time, uh, which you don't get in a vacation Bible school Bible story. Yes, but um, you, you you see this moral decay. And you're you're right. It's like with Cain, you see the the Lamech is all of a sudden like, you know, killing 77 people. And yes. And then, and then like David sins with David sins committing adultery and like his, his sexual appetite is kind of weird. And then Solomon is like way out of, out of pocket, you know? Um, and then, and you know, Solomon's uh, foolishness with ruling and then his son wrote, oh, it's like, it's like you see the moral decay. And, and it, it seems like the Bible is trying to make you ask the question, who's going to stop this? You know? And then all of a sudden you have Jesus and you're like, Oh, nice. That's yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, we need something more. We need yeah. something more. I, I think another theme that's really interesting, if you think about the Old Testament, what's the fundamental sin of the Old Testament is idolatry, mm-hmm. uh, right? And I think, again, we think of that as negative, like, or worshiping pagan gods. Well, we don't worship pagan gods. Well, you know, of course we worship worldly gods, right? But um, that if we go a little bit into it, think about this idea that um, it's that basically, right, do we really know who God is? Do we not have a caricature of God? He's uh, me, right? I thought it was me the whole time. <laughs> the whole world has a caricature of God, which yeah. often is ourselves or mm-hmm. others. Or, I mean, do you have a real, do you even know your parents really? You do have a caricature of your family members, friends. It takes time to really get to know another person. Yeah. And I think many people have a caricature of God, either one, that he's punishing me, or number two, that he ought to be helping me more than he is, right? One way or the other, mm-hmm. we tend to blame God for our problems, and we project onto God our own dysfunctions, our own anger, our own thing. And so what God does over time, and you can see this both with his revelation to Moses. Moses at one point says, show me your glory, right? And he passes by Moses, but he doesn't show him his face. Mm-hmm. Same with Elijah. Elijah says, show me show me." who you are, God, and eventually comes and he speaks, he's aware of his presence in the still and quiet voice, but neither of them see his face. And so over time, the entire history of Israel, right, is this desire to see the true face of God. Hmm. And I think we just have to realize that's harder to do. There's a line from the story in, or there's a little story from the book of Hosea, which I really think is so powerful, where God says to Hosea, says, tell my people Israel, right? that I will no longer be your ball, but I will be your husband. Now, the ball, ball, B-A-A-L, is the most kind of typical uh, pagan god that was worshipped in the ancient Near East. Uh, there, there are a handful of them, but he was basically a god of fertility, make the animals fertile, the land fertile, the families fertile, and were often worshipped through fertility rites that were infertile because it was cultic prostitution and these other elements of sacrifice. But the word Baal meant master. 
So you could have two kinds of husbands in the ancient world. You could have masters and then you were a slave, or you could have a mm -hmm. husband and you were an equal. So God says, I no longer want to be your master. I am not your master. You've misunderstood me. I want to be your husband. I want to take you into the wilderness and speak tenderly to you. Right? This is the Old Testament. This is not just, this is not Jesus. This is the heart of the Old Testament is showing yeah. that God right is a merciful God. Right? Every time God reveals himself in the Old Testament, he reveals himself right as a God of mercy, hesed in the, you know, in, in the Hebrew, sometimes it's translated as steadfast love, covenantal love, whatever it is, that's, it's God's true face that he's slowly helping us to understand. And I just think we want to ask ourselves, you know, do I really know God on God's terms? Hmm. You know, what is my image of God? Is it really adequate to who God is? And is it adequate to who God has revealed himself to be? Mm -hmm. Dang. There's this there's this comedian that I like who um, he was walked out on stage and, and someone shouted, I love you. And he was like, no, you don't. You love the idea of me. Uh, it's called a parasocial relationship. It's uh, meaningless and ultimately destructive. But by all means, keep buying tickets, um, <laughs> which I thought was very. But it's that, that that's exactly it. It's like you, you have this construct of who a person is, this celebrity. Yeah. And similarly, we have this construct of who, who God is. Um, and we decide to devote ourselves entirely to that. But in, in, yeah, in general, it's like what that becomes is a poor reflection of ourself. It's we, we attribute to God our own, our own characteristics, um, which is like, go ahead, Ethan. I'm just talking. And that's what we have of this episode. I'm sorry that we don't have more. Thank you for listening to what we did put out. Um, I trust that you guys will go and buy Dr. Michael's book, The Wisdom of the Word, and uh, give him the support that he deserves. Check out his stuff. Uh, again, wish we could have had the whole episode, but things happen the way that they are. I trust that God has a plan for all of this. All right. We'll see you guys next week. Love you. Bye.